0: Hello, readers. Aaron Franklin is one of the most recognized names in barbecue and the winner of a James Beard Award for Best Chef Southwest. On top of being the man responsible for Franklin Barbecue on the east side, he has co-authored two books with Jordan McKay. The first was titled Franklin Barbecue. The most recent is Franklin Steak. Aaron, thank you for the time. Why a book about steak?
1: Well, it turns out after a long day of cooking barbecue being all smoky and hot and sweaty, steak is totally what you want. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, really, steaks happened from uh, Jordan McKay, the writer, and myself when we were working on the first book, Franklin Barbecue and Meat Smoking Manifesto. Kind of found ourselves at the end of the day, you know, just kind of recapping what we would all talked about and stuff and, you know, the day at the restaurant and everything and kind of found ourselves kind of geeking out on grilling steaks. Um, And he kind of at that point, this is a long time ago, like, you know, man, it'd be fun to do a steak book one day. I'm like, yeah, sure, buddy, whatever. And then uh, about three years later, we were still talking about it. So I was
0: like, well, let's do a steak book. So was there a moment in your life where you realized that you just really loved grilling steak for whatever that next meal would be?
1: Um, I think, well, I kind of grew up, you know, like any good Texan, like, you know, Friday nights, your dad throws a couple T-bones on the the grill or something like that. Um so it's always kind of like barbecue, always kind of been a little nostalgic. And, I mean, grilling things always smells good and it's always delicious. Uh, well, hopefully always. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like after I moved to Austin when I was 18, you know, buying a cheap piece of meat at HEB and throwing it on the grill. And like, yeah, this is great. Really, they were terrible. But, um, yeah, I guess I just never outgrew it, really.
2: Mm. So where did your – You've probably been asked this a million times before, but just your love, your nostalgia that you talk about of meat, of steak, just meat in general. Where did that really start, and how did that kind of get ingrained in you?
1: I think it's because I'm a Texan.
2: <laughs> how simple as that.
1: Good answer. Well,
2: um, oh, plenty of Texans out there, but don't turn it into careers and don't yeah, write books about it. You know,
1: maybe I just got lucky, or maybe I just did it too much. I'm not real sure what happened, but somehow, you know, lots of hobbies have turned into jobs, and uh, which is pretty cool. I mean, I don't know what else I would rather do with my time. But um yeah, I grill and stuff is fun. It's a good excuse to get outside and fiddle around with the grill, have a beer, hang out, have some friends over, feed the family. I think it kind of, you know, represents what I do in general.
0: You guys write that uh, the three most important elements that contribute to the taste and the culinary experience of beef are genetics, environment, and age. Regarding Genetics, do different breeds produce different flavors, or is beef really beef when it comes down to it? Well, so a lot of studies
1: have been done on that stuff, and Texas A&M, Animal Science Department, does a ton of stuff on this. Um, It is kind of a – genetics do play a huge role. I mean, they kind of decide how the cow grows, how its fat gets added on, how it wants to eat, if it's good for hot weather, if it's good for dry weather, for droughts and stuff like that. Um, same with like pigs and pretty much any other type of animal. Um, but how they eat and how they grow plays a huge part on how they taste. So it's all kind of, all three of those things really work together. Um, you couldn't remove one of those three things and still have the other two work.
0: And speaking on that, in the most simplistic terms, you're talking about grain fed versus grass fed. Do you have a preference between one of the two and why?
1: Well, it depends I, I do have preferences for certain things. For barbecue, I like corn finished. Um, it's kind of sweeter flavor, better fat. Uh, for some stuff like that, but for steaks and stuff, I really do like grass fed. Mm. Um, but even from there, you get into like what type of grass, like, and that's where kind of ranchers and farmers really become more like kind of dirt specialists. Like, what's the minerality and the soil? What, how does grass grow? What's the sun? What's the water? All this kind of stuff. And even that really affects I mean, You can take a cow that ate, you know, clovers and field peas and stuff like that. And it tastes completely different Uh. from something that would eat some other type of grass. Um, You know, and that's really sometimes, you know, if you see a cow that's got really yellow fat or kind of like looks a little bit different, that's from the grass. So Mm -hmm. if you think about, you know, you kind of are what you eat. It's very true.
2: You're like oh. studying cows when you're driving along 35, you're just like, hmm, this is that, this is that. Well,
1: for me, I mean, it's more like a cartoon kind of thing. I see,
2: you know. <laughs> so I want to ask, little Looney Tunes, <laughs> yeah, maybe jump in the gun a little bit here. But uh, I read in a recent interview you did with Texas Monthly about this book that you, one of your goals of writing this is to get people onto fillets a little bit more. Maybe there's a stigma well,
1: about the fillet. I don't know that that's really a goal. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that, that I learned with this book and, and Jordan as well is that you always kind of, like, you grow up or you kind of form your habits and, like, your opinions on stuff. And maybe you didn't listen to a certain band because somebody you didn't like liked. And you're we like, ah, oh, man. And years later, it's like, God, it turns out this band is awesome. <laughs> uh, kind of the same thing with food a lot of times. You know, like, a lot of people tend to say, like, oh, I like ribeyes. only eat ribeyes. Like, there's a lot of other steaks on a cow that, right. you know, might be better, might be worse, might just be different but equally as good. Um, But I think that's something that I kind of learned. I've always – not necessarily with a filet, but I've always liked ribeyes, of course, and I do love a good ribeye. Spinalis, you know, the cap on a ribeye is probably one of the best pieces of meat on the whole cow. But writing this book, I kind of realized that I actually like New York strips better uh, for the minerality and just like the texture. Um, And then if you go through all that flavor, you know, it's like fat doesn't necessarily equal flavor, which is also kind of a thing. It's like, oh, I like the fattiest piece of meat. Well, of course, because it's like it chews well, you know. Um, but the flavor difference on a filet, you know, they're so buttery soft and they don't have quite as much flavor. But, you know, kind of the idea was if you learn how to cook different pieces of meat in different ways, you can have a really, really great steak that doesn't have to be a ribeye. It doesn't have to be a stripper. It doesn't have to be a filet. So it's kind of, you know, celebrate the entire animal. Don't just... Say you're a ribeye guy or a filet person or whatever.
0: That was honestly one of the things that I uh, I gained the most from out of reading and uh, looking through this book is seeing the different parts of the cow and how many different cuts it gives. Oh, yeah. like it's crazy the, how many muscles are in there. The porterhouse and the the T-bone and the tenderloin. I mean, all of these things are, are very much interconnected and, uh, in ways that you wouldn't necessarily realize if you haven't studied up on it before.
1: Yep. Um, you know, and even for me, many years ago... Uh, hanging out with butchers and butchering animals and stuff like that. I was like, oh, that's how that's how a T-bone works. You don't really get that uh, just going at the grocery store and looking at stuff in a little cellophane package. It's like, well, I know what a T-bone looks like, but how is it, like, arranged yep. on the cow? Um, I think that's some of, the, like, the coolest stuff ever.
0: Yeah, and it's- the illustrations that you guys provide in the book do an excellent job of helping to explain that. Now, regarding buying steaks, Aaron, you guys point out that there's really three different places to buy a steak from, straight from the farm, from a butcher, a curator, or from a market like a grocery store, mm-hmm. all things equal, is straight from the farm the preferred method for you to buy a steak? Um,
1: yes and no. It's always cool to buy as local as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you can go out, you know the the farmer, you can get it there. Um, but at the same time, a lot of those places aren't really set up to actually sell you just one steak. Like you would need to buy like a whole like prime rib or like a half a half of a cow or something like that. Um my preferred place is really just like a good butcher shop. You know, and it, maybe that's you know, a really great uh grocery store like a Whole Foods or Central Market or something like that. Um or a place like Salt and Time or like 4505 in San Francisco or you know, they're kind of spread this new school butcher shop thing is kind of sprouting up all over the country. Um and those are really the best because then they can buy fresher and better meat from their local ranchers and then they can butcher and break it down to like a more usable size for a consumer, um, and then it's also nice to go and you know and talk to the butcher that knew the cow, knows the who who raised it and stuff. Be like, oh man, well today like these bavets look really good. Oh man, I got these crazy butcher steaks. Check these out, and that kind of you know can get you out of your comfort zone a little bit too.
0: You mentioned Salt and Time. You give those guys uh, a lot of love in this book, which is really cool because uh, like you mentioned, they are one of the best butchers in the entire country. What is it you love so much about Salt and Time?
1: Um, I, well, aside from just being good people and just rad dudes, um, you know, they're kind of like started like the game doing that stuff. in Austin, I mean, we never really had like a proper butcher shop, like a, you know, just like super, like high quality stuff. Um, love what they do. You know, they're ethical. They're buying really great stuff. They're really good at it. They're You know, Brian is such a talented butcher and everybody else up there too. Um, yeah, I just love what they're
2: doing. I'm going to be selfish here outside of uh, outside of salt and time. You know, I'm, I'm like you when you were 18. You said, I just go to H-E-B and pick up a cut of meat. And that was what was on the <laughs> like grill. $2? Sold. I was like, oh, whatever's the cheapest. <laughs> and uh, this looks edible enough. I think I can uh, uh, throw a bunch of lean and Perins on there. and We'll be OK. Today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. But uh, Also for the listeners, also for myself, just a couple of other places that you would maybe go to to consider buying a good quality. Uh, piece here in town?
1: Meat. Sure. Um, you know, Central Market uh, Butcher Counter is kind of where I usually buy stuff just because it's mm-hmm. I'm there buying groceries anyway. Um, I think they have great stuff. I love Whole Foods. Uh, any of them. The one, of course, the one on Lamar and Six is has the biggest, like, you know, butcher counter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are about the only three places that really go.
2: Okay. Oh, thank you. That's that's going to change my life. For, uh, for Central the Market. Woo. There
0: it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what does uh, branded meat in, uh, mean in 2019? Branded meat that you get at, like, a grocery store. What does that mean to you?
1: Um... It depends on the grocery store. I mean, usually, you know, I mean, you can make anything taste pretty good. And I don't want to be too snooty on like, like, oh, don't cook that. I mean, it's an animal. We should, you know, represent it well and, and celebrate that it gave its life for us to eat food, you know, and, and live. But that's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, without being too negative on that kind of stuff, I mean, it's usually just kind of like cheaper commodity meat big corporate stuff. They're fast growth animals. Like it's not, that meat's not necessarily there for flavor and just, you know, it's not maybe ethical. It probably has growth hormones, like all kinds of stuff like that. Um That's kind of like more normal, like, you know, Americanized, you know, beef.
0: And there's also something that has to do with the Americanized beef that a lot of people purchase and grocery stores around the country that has to do with these various grades, how is meat graded, and is that something that is a pretty legit system?
1: It's sort of – well, it's pretty legit, I guess. Um, meat's graded. When a when an animal gets processed, you uh, there's a a certain spot on the uh, rib cage, slice open, and then you – the way it used to be is a USDA inspector would look at it and be like, oh, well, that's a prime, that's select, whatever. So th- you kind of grade it on that particular ribeye by how much fat marbling – is incorporated into the muscle so if it's a lot of fat um, and I think gosh I have to brush up on the stats but I don't think it's more than gosh 10% of all cows like great primes that would be the highest one mm-hmm. um, here in the US um, you know and that's what we cook at Franklin barbecue that's kind of that's where I like to usually get meat um, and then below that it would be like upper two-thirds choice or upper third depending on the company Um, of choice, and then choice is probably, like, 70% of the whole, like, you know, population. And then from there, it's select, and that's when you get into, like, some of the really, like, super cheap, like, super tough stuff that you would need to, like, braise or cook for a really long time, Mm -hmm. also known as brisket. That's how brisket had always been, Mm. Um, at least when I was a kid, you know, it was, like, the cheapest, lowest grade of meat. You cook it forever, you smoke it, you try to make it tender. Um, And then below that, you get into either like a no-grade or like a no-roll. And a no-roll means that maybe they're just kind of gambling on this animal before they really cut into it to see what the marbling's looking like. We're like, oh, man, that's like not a good – we don't think it's going to turn out right. So they would they would refuse to roll it as prime choice or select. And a lot of that stuff would go to like dog food or like fast food restaurants and get grounded to burgers and hmm. that kind of stuff. So it's kind of uh. – there's a place for everything to go, and there is a place for all those grades um, and just – you know, just because you raise an animal ethically and give it lots of lots of love and lots of sunlight, lots of grass and lots of corn and, and grain and whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to grade as a high piece of meat. And, you know, really, there's some great stuff out there. I mean, some of my favorite steaks are old dairy cows, like 20-year-old mm. dairy cows. They're super lean, um, and you don't necessarily have the fat or the marbling in there, but what they trade off is a lot of flavor and it's like super beefiness. Uh, we don't really have those here in this country, but you know, it's a it's a grand spectrum of beef out there.
0: So you're essentially saying that this notion that marbling is the most important quality in a good steak isn't always necessarily true.
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, it's kind of indicative of a of a better piece of meat for sure, kind of like to the ribeye thing, mm-hmm. you know. But if you have a healthy cow uh, with good genetics it's pretty likely that you could get a really nice piece of meat out of something that doesn't have a lot of marbling.
2: Now, you obviously know a lot about this stuff. No, I'm totally making this up. <laughs> I'm
1: totally ripping it. it been a fashion... I read this
2: book by Jordan McKay. Oh, I, uh, it's pretty good. It taught me everything I know. I didn't even write the book. It's, uh, you know, I'm curious, though, because obviously there was some research that went into this book with you and Jordan. What was maybe the coolest thing or a couple of things that you learned when putting this book together that maybe you didn't know about beef before you wrote this?
1: Um, I learned a lot through Jordan as far as like the genetics and the breeding and stuff. And we went out and met a bunch of ranchers and kind of learning where like Wagyu's came from and this steer came from Japan in 1981 and it's all kind of broken down. Well, it's not too detailed in there, I guess, but like learning that stuff was super fascinating. Mm. I wish I could remember all of it. It's a (laughs) lot of information. (laughs) Um, but more of, for me, my big learning thing was more of the experiments that we did, like figuring out how to get the best, uh, You know browning on the outside of the steak the maillard reaction uh, finding just the right temperature learning how to dry out the surface um we did an experiment with pre-salting and air drying in the refrigerator and sometimes it's kind of hard it's not that big of a deal really um but you know you buy a steak you throw some salt on it and it's all wet and stuff and then you put it in a hot skillet which i do cook almost every steak like that because i don't know if i'm gonna have time to cook dinner 24 hours in advance i don't think many of us have that luxury Mm -hmm. um But, you know, it's all wet and it's kind of hard to get a good crust on that. But if you have the foresight, like if you have a dinner party or something like that, uh, we learned that if you salt steak, let it air dry, and then you put it on a grill or then you put it on a plancher or in a skillet, uh, the flavors are much better with the salt as it pulls the moisture out and then reabsorbs it. But then the air drying allows you to get a much better crust. Mm. So kind of like those experiments were kind of, we had like some ideas and we'd, you know, kind of like with the pre-salting, it's like, wow, that is a huge difference.
2: Huh.
0: And uh, the difference you're talking about is salting 48 hours in advance versus doing it, say, 15 to 30 minutes before you throw it on yeah, the grill totally. or on the uh, on the uh, skillet or something mm-hmm. like
1: that. But even like aside from like the moisture and stuff, or it doesn't have to be 48 hours. I mean, it could totally be 24. Okay. Is you know, if we do steaks at the restaurant, uh, we usually hang them out. Twenty-four hours before pre-salt them, but even like finding that a uh, percentage of salt. So you're not just throwing a little splash of salt, and you know, just like really evenly salting something. Um, like one point five four percent kind of seemed to be the golden number by weight. Twenty-four,
0: a, and then leave it in the fridge for for the uh, or twenty-four hours beforehand. And twenty-four leave it hours in the fridge for the full time
1: using a percentage of salt to the steaks weight. One
2: point five four. See, this guy said he didn't yeah. remember all the numbers. Wow, no kidding. Um, He's just dropping all the details well, right here. Gee whiz.
1: Uh, but, yeah, that kind of seemed to be, like, the sweet spot. Like, man, the steak, huh. but the amount of flavor that comes out of a steak in 24 hours had no idea. You know, kind of like dry aging takes a long time and pulls certain flavors out that way. Uh, the salting could kind of, like, really make something taste so much more beefy than it otherwise would. Mm-hmm. Because the salt's not on the surface. It's actually, like, penetrated the meat.
0: Mm-hmm. So the salt and thyme guys, uh, Brian and Ben, they provide their 10- ten- Butcher Shop Steak Commandments. And I'm not going to ask you to go through all 10. Good, <laughs> because uh, I do remember,
1: remember it. it. On. Thou shalt not but something or other. Number
0: eight is be adventurous. And this is something that you talked about at the start of this conversation, that you should venture out, not necessarily always settle on the ribeye or the strip, whatever else it is. When was the last time you were adventurous with a, a steak purchase and cook? Hmm.
1: You know, pretty much every time, I'll get like a random... Steak, or like, hey, what is that thing? It's like, oh, it's a blah, blah, you know, some made up name that some butcher made up. Like, yeah, sure, I'll try that. um And you know, but I mean, one of the things about the book is that like, don't stick to like just buying ribeyes. Like, kind of, you know, like you said, yeah. just kind of get out of your comfort zone a little bit. um But really, the idea to be able to go to the store, go to the butcher shop, or or be wherever, be at a restaurant, you know, that has like a meat counter. Um, and to be able to look at the muscle structure or the fat content or the subcutaneous fat or the marbling or the color of the meat or the thickness or the grain and all that kind of stuff and be like, I know how to cook that. Hmm. And regardless of what like label it has, just to be able to cook almost anything.
0: Why should you always go bone in if you have that option? Um,
1: it depends on the meat, but usually bone in tastes better, um, You know, it's just kind of that's that's the way the the steak was was made, you know, Um, but for certain uh, methods, uh, having a bone bone on can be pretty helpful. Like if you're doing a tomahawk steak or, you know, a long bone ribeye or something like that. um, If you want to cook something straight on the coals, it's nice to have a bone to grab with some tongs. Mm. Uh, But also it's kind of better for moisture retention too. totally depends on the cut.
2: Hmm. So how did the goals, you know, you mentioned this is the second book that you and Jordan have put out together. Like, what what were the different goals in writing this book? Obviously, you're talking about steak versus Franklin Barbecue in general. But what were some of the things maybe you learned from the first book that you wrote that you tried to change or do differently with Franklin Steak? Um, I don't think really we tried to do anything too different. We kind of came up with a
1: formula for the barbecue book. You know, it is more we wanted it to be more of a sort of an easy reading, lighthearted, sciencey book, like more of a reference book. Hmm. like you know if if you looked at the at the barbecue book there really i think there's like 11 recipes and there's a brisket recipe that's probably like 100 pages long or something uh, but kind of the same thing with franklin steak like there's a recipe in here for tomatoes with salt and vinegar hmm. like is that really a recipe not really but it's what we like to eat mm-hmm. with steak sure. you know like you need some acidity and and i think tomatoes are really great with with beef um, so we really didn't want to focus much on recipes and stuff, but more like technique and just kind of like the ideas. i I think it's neat um, to be able to look at a book. And if you look at some older like cookbooks, like uh, Harold McGee's on Food and Cooking, like that's totally not a recipe book. It's all food theory, or like Nathan Mirvold stuff. Um, I like books that kind of make you think about things so you don't just follow a recipe. You don't really learn much from following a recipe. You learn by touching things and tasting and be like,, uh, I think that's too salty or I think it's whatever. Uh, But just kind of, you know, just to get the knowledge there or just to give you something to think about, too.
0: Sure. You gave me a a lot to think about regarding the grilling method. You go over the uh, various ways that you can get heat on that piece of meat and includes, of course, the stovetop of the cast iron that you talked about. And you said Mm -hmm. that's your number one method. That's the the way you go about it.
1: Well, I think that's the best way to cook a filet. Okay, uh, Because it doesn't have a lot of fat. You could kind of spoon on some butter and just kind of help it out a little bit. Um, I usually cook steaks at home in a skillet because i don't have time to go fire up a grill yep um so it's just kind of easy especially if you're just feeding two people like you're probably not going to go grill um but i do like i think grilled steaks are by far my favorite um you know like all like if you can have like oak or, or a wood that you like and actually burn it down to coals um i usually don't use like charcoal charcoal if i do it's all natural charcoal
0: okay um, uh, the uh, the gas grill and the sous vide those are uh, those are cheating methods, right? I mean, you well, can you can certainly cook a good steak that way, but it uh, kind of takes the fun out of the yeah, process. The pellet
2: grill too, right? With the the, the newest invention yeah, of the grill, it's all uh, maybe
1: a little bit. Well, at least with a pellet grill, you're getting some type of flavor from its fuel, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not you like that flavor. I'm going to stay out of that argument. <laughs> um, I, I want nothing to do with that one. <laughs> um, but you know, like. We have a propane grill at home, and it's great for, like, charring tomatoes and doing some stuff like that. But it doesn't impart any flavor. You might as well just cook it inside it, I feel like. Um, And kind of same with sous vide. It's kind of, you know, you're you're swapping out, like, a cooking method for, like, a perfectly cooked steak. But, again, what is perfectly cooked? I like my steaks to have a gradient where maybe it is just a little bit overcooked on the outside, and then it goes down to rare or mid-rare, depending on the cut. Mm -hmm. Um, But with sous vide, I feel like you have to have so much heat to get a good crust on it. And I really like that textural, like I like a good crust, you know, on, on things. Of course. Um, and with sous vide, you cook it in a bag and it's kind of wet and stuff. So it takes a lot of heat to overcome that to get a good crust, mm. um, even though it is perfectly cooked throughout and it's evenly cooked. Um, yeah. It's kind of, you know, pick your battles a little bit. You know, sous vide is super easy and, you know, if you are feeding twenty people and you don't have a lot of grill space, that's probably the way to go
0: for the consistency, if nothing else. Yeah, right? or
1: just like par cook stuff and then just finish them off on a really hot grill. Um, you know, I mean, everything's got its pros and cons, but you know, propane grills well easy.
0: That's understood. Speaking of that fuel, you just mentioned uh, having a piece of wood in the grill. You guys break down the uh, the different ways to set up your grill, if you will, and there's something Mm -hmm. called the Franklin method. Yeah, I did not make that up. You did not make that up. Well, I did
1: make that up, I think, but Jordan actually named it. I wanted to just be like, yeah... We're just putting a piece of wood on the grill.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, for people who are unaware, what is this uh, this charcoal slash put a piece of wood on the grill? wouldn't well, called the Franklin method.
1: So, I usually grill on a PK grill. It's Portable mm-hmm. Kitchen out of Little Rock, uh, Arkansas. Um, they started in the '50s, but the cool that one of the things I like about uh, the PKs is that they're rectangular. So, like if you have a kettle grill like a Weber or something like that, it's not rectangular. So, you pretty much have a heat source in the middle. And it's hard to get, like, a hotter zone and a cooler zone. Sure. But on a rectangular grill, I like to kind of separate out the hot and the cold side with a little piece of wood.
0: It's a sweet-looking grill, too.
1: Oh, man, those things are great. I love the PKs. Um, I probably grill more because I have a PK than I would if I didn't, just because they're so easy to work with. um, And I really like cooking on them. But, um, yeah, so, you know, if depending on how you're cooking, I think it's cool because you just don't have, like— a bunch of charcoal on one side, and then it fades out. You can kind of build it up and get a little bit of flavor from, you know, that smoke. I think it's cool um, because sometimes I'll start a steak off real slow and just let it kind of like hang out on the smokier side of it, and then I'll Mm -hmm. finish it off hot or start it off hot and then just let it temper out, you know, over some smoke.
0: So it's essentially charcoal on one side. The middle third is whatever piece of wood that you've cut down to fit perfectly into the grill. And then that other side is where you can have the cold side slash... Yeah, just the, leave it
1: leave it open. The meat just you know, macerating it. in the smoke. Yeah, that way, also, you know, that's really... Because if you're cooking at a restaurant, like, on a grill, that's how you would do it. Like, if you have a flare-up, you just pull it off, put it on the cool side, and just kind of move it around a lot. Mm. Um, so it really takes a lot of pressure off. You know, because, I mean, y'all have, like, grilled, like, sausages and, like, got, like, a fireball out <laughs> of this thing or something like that. Like, yeah. if you have a really fatty steak, like, you know, like a prime ribeye or, like, wagyu, or, well, you probably wouldn't grill wagyu anyway. Um... But, uh, yeah, it kind of gives you, like, a safe place to go. Mm. It also kind of lets you take a steak off, see how it's cooked. You're like, yeah, it looks good. If you have some questions, maybe cut a little in there, take a peek. um, And then you could kind of put it back on the grill. You don't have to, like – it's not all or nothing. You can have some variables in there.
2: Okay. This book about steak, Aaron – it's, it's got me thinking. Are you thinking of uh, a steak restaurant at some point in the near future? No. No, sure not. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: this is uh, um, just,
2: just for the book. Okay. Yeah.
1: Gosh. The barbecue place is so hard to keep up with. I uh, Yeah, steaks. I think I'm going to keep steaks in, in my fun zone. Okay.
2: I figured I had to ask. I know the people here read all this stuff a lot of people have been asking, book, yeah, they'll be thinking like, oh, hey, this might be the well, start of something to right?
1: Like, no, but, you know, maybe after the tofu book, we'll, we'll look at a new restaurant.
2: After the no, tofu. No,
0: just kidding.
2: <laughs> Unbelievable, man. Is,
0: is there a general rule of thumb to proper doneness, and uh, is a digital thermometer an important uh, part of that process to make sure that you have the steak cooked the way that you want it?
1: Well, you know, I think... Kind of the big, the worst thing you could do for a steak is to overcook it. Okay, like you can't uncook a piece of meat. If it's overcooked, it's just overcooked. Um, and thermometers, kind of, if you're if you're taking some internal temperatures, they'll kind of give you a a rough guideline of where you're headed, or like, mm-hmm. oh, it's getting close. Or especially if you're going to par cook something, those those temperatures become more important. Um, but if you're cooking a steak and and you really have no clue, it's kind of a rough guideline. But really, at the end of the day cut into it and it's, you know, still super duper raw in the middle, you might want to throw it back on, but it, you know, really, you kind of just have to learn how to do it by feel a little bit, but I don't think there's one like perfect temperature for a steak to be cooked. Every steak's different. Every cow's different. Every muscle's different, you know, and some steaks eat a little bit better at medium. Some eat a little bit better at
2: rare um just kind of depends depends on the piece of meat. So what do you do if you're cooking steaks for a group of people, group of friends and family and somebody asks for their steak well done? Do you just kick them out? Do you do you throw the piece of meat no, at them? No, what, no. what's the punishment for that? Um,
1: <laughs> I don't know that any of my friends would request that. That's, that's why, uh, <laughs> that's why they're your friends, they're not um, friends. <laughs> But I would probably just politely be like, Are you sure? Let's let's talk about that. Um I have a couple of friends that like their steaks cooked a little bit more or like, you know, fish you're like oh i like my like my salmon well done like oh gosh Mm. um yeah i think it's 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 an opportunity to have a friendly conversation right (laughs) yeah
2: explain hey buy this book little this will tell you about how. not uh... that it's
1: wrong just like well let's get to the bottom of this like why do you why do you like it like that have you let's let's (laughs) try this i'll put
2: it back on if you want me to they had a bad experience at some point with an undercooked piece of it meat, almost, maybe. And they're like, always,
1: uh, it always goes ugh. back to something you know, you're like, oh, I don't like those rare, I don't like fillets. Always goes back to something you're like, you had a bad one, didn't you?
2: I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna send someone uh, to your place one time and ask for a well done steak with the GoPro and just see what the yeah. were. Well, I think you're going radio PC on us. Man. I, think, I think you'd actually no, do something to them.
1: No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> But the thing about brisket is at Franklin Barbecue is that they're all overcooked. That's how you make a tender brisket. So it's a wide range. Yeah. It's a wide range. <laughs>
0: uh, a couple real quick um, popular thoughts about steak that I want you to either say, yeah, that's that's pretty true, or uh, actually, you know what? That's a little bit of BS. <laughs> Should a steak only be flipped one time when you're cooking it? No, total BS. Okay. And uh, does a cooked steak need to rest before consumption?
1: Um, it depends on how much mass there is. So sometimes yes, sometimes no. Okay. Sometimes it might rest on the plate while it's getting to the table.
0: That's understood. And uh, last thing for me, Aaron. So the cover of this book is just, uh, is that a bavette? Is it a strip? What is the what is the, uh, the piece of That is a
1: dry-aged tomahawk ribeye. Um,
0: that looks incredible. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. I had that dry-aging dry in my home refrigerator for uh, quite a few months.
0: And part of the reason why it looks incredible is because of the sauce that's on the side. And to me, as somebody who loves chimichurri, I I assumed that it was chimichurri. But but as I read through the book, it's not chimichurri. It's the salsa verde sauce that you give the recipe for within the book. Yeah. Actually, I have all the ingredients. I'm going to make it up tonight and uh, serve it as part of a, a porterhouse tomorrow night. Oh,
1: Sweet. Yeah, what's your dress? When, uh, Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it,
0: it looks fantastic. It's got anchovies in it. It's got lemon, honey, uh, garlic, of course, uh, Italian flat leaf yeah, parsley. shallots are optional. There's shallots a, are optional. You know,
1: actually, funny thing is, I think, so the recipe in the book either calls for shallots, and then I didn't have a shallot when we were shooting the cover of this, so I just didn't put it in, and a lot of people have actually been like, hey, what's up with that, dude? Um, so... Yeah. Again, like cooking the steak, you kind of a loose guideline, although that is a fabulous recipe. And I use that at the restaurant all the time and for events. But yeah, I mean, I just kind of stumbled across a a salsa verde, um, probably at a steakhouse. Be like, my God, what is this? This is, this is my spirit animal. And, uh, (laughs) it's a really good sauce.
0: And so you uh, you just stumbled across it a couple years ago, and uh, you tinkered and uh, tested things out until you got the uh, the recipe. I that you probably liked.
1: just made it by feel and then weighed everything afterwards, and that was the recipe, Nice. most likely. But I do have it in uh, in spreadsheet form. It's all in metric. <laughs>
0: there you go. <laughs> he is Aaron Franklin. Uh, you know him from Fra- Franklin Barbecue over on the East Side, and he also has a fantastic new book out called Franklin Steak. Aaron, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks, Heck, Aaron. yeah.
1: Thanks for having me. Good hanging out with you guys.